Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. It's an overcast day here in Kamloops. Temperatures are going to plunge over the weekend, so time to warm up with lots of good political talk. And we'll have that in spades throughout the show, including have former MLA Cabinet Minister and Kamloops Mayor Terry Lake on the show to talk about a potential jump into Canadian federal politics with the Liberal Party, although he's not committed yet. We'll see if we can kick him off the fence. But first, welcome to the panel, the Vancouver Sons of Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning, Shane, and it's interesting to hear that uh, Terry Lake just can't stay away from politics. <laughs> oh, he's going to run, Vaughn. And go on and do uh, other things, and whoop, he's now thinking of coming back. That's right, that's right. We're going to see if we can get a firm yes out of him a little later in the show. But first, uh, man, oh man, we had a by-election in Nanaimo this week. Uh, it was one of the uh, sort of rare ingredients going into the by-election that the entire province stopped and watched to see what exactly would happen. Uh, it teased some drama early in the race, the first, I don't know what, five, six ballot boxes coming in showed a pretty tight race, and then after that uh, any thought of a tight race was put well away as Sheila Malcolmson ran away with it. So I guess first question to you, Vaughn, I know the Liberals uh, the ones I was talking to at least uh, told me they genuinely thought they had a shot at this. They thought it was going to be a super tight race and perhaps they could win in a squeaker. Uh, was that pie in the sky or, or what happened there? Well, I think it was a bit of wishful thinking on the part of the Liberals. Uh, they made it, uh, they improved their vote. They they went from 34% of the vote, 33% of the vote last time, up to uh, just over 40% this time. So that's a good improvement. They had a good, strong candidate, and there's plenty of consolations in that. But uh, the New Democrats did what they had to do. You, you're right. Uh, I think when those first few ballot boxes came in, the, there were some New Democrats going, oh, my God, what have we done, right? But <laughs> they pulled it off. They got the big win, and I think you give a lot of credit to Premier John Horgan for taking the risk. He could have avoided this by-election by putting Leonard Krogh in the cabinet, and Leonard probably wouldn't have stepped down to run for mayor of Nanaimo and create the by-election. Premier didn't do that. He was willing to risk everything on a by-election. He pulled it off, and I think he gets credit for that. Uh, Rob, what did you uh, read into this whole thing? I mean, was it a matter of issues? Uh, I know if you listen to the candidate debates and, and things like that, there was a lot of local issues, housing. Or at the end of the day, was it just a strong NDP riding where the government, the NDP government was under threat and the NDP support came out in spades to support that government? Yeah, I mean, I think talking to New Democrats right up until um, voting night, they were scared. They were legitimately worried that they were going to lose this riding and they pulled out all the stops. This was the NDP machine um, at its at its um, fastest, I guess, um, with uh, fear as its fuel. And you notice that they produced at the last minute a um, attack ad, one of those unsigned um, door flyers, the kind that we used to see in Vancouver in Chinese. You know, um, this one was uh, about the Liberals at the last minute. Didn't even have Sheena Malcolmson's name on it, and that kind of pulley ripcord emergency maneuver is what the NDP did right up until the last minute. And yes, they won. <clears throat> but this is a riding like Vancouver's downtown east side. The NDP should never lose this riding. And the fact that the Liberals got to um, increase their vote um, is probably good news for them. So I think it's a it's validation for the New Democrats that they've still got the juice, even though a couple uh, issues did resonate against them in the riding. And we'll all be kind of wondering um, to what extent the speculation tax, the employer health tax, and government's modular housing solution to the homeless crisis um, 
is actually not resonating very well with the public on the doorstep because it certainly didn't in Nanaimo. Those were those were drags on the NDP machine right up until the end, and uh, but they still managed to get over the hurdle. Yeah, we're going to dive a little more into those uh, those issues a little later in the show. Um, uh, to you, Vaughn, one of the more interesting aspects of this was the BC Greens went in, and at least they talked tough going into their race. They thought what they had is star candidate and Michelle Ney, uh, the Ney name well-known in Nanaimo. They thought they were going to do some damage, potentially challenge for the seat, and they did anything but. They completely imploded. Uh, 7% of the vote, they weren't in it from the start, and they sure as hell weren't in it at the end. Uh, uh, what went wrong there? Well, I think it was probably a mistake for the Greens to run a candidate. Uh, their Democrats are sort of now saying, well, you know, we told them that all you're going to do is go backwards, and they did. Uh, they had 20% of the vote last time. They dropped to 7. That's actually their poorest, smallest share of the vote in Nanaimo since 1996. So, you know, they've come out with various uh, explanations and excuses. Uh, I think the most obvious one is that the NDP went into the riding and said, look, uh, you, if you don't vote for us, you're running the risk of we're going back to a liberal government. You're not just going to be electing a liberal MLA on a vote split. You're probably going to create a situation where we could be back to a liberal government. And that's a fair tactic. That's the old vote splitting thing. Uh, the, the Greens seem to think that that's kind of unfair and dirty pool. But that's how the established, the big parties in this province have played politics at election time for generations. The liberals... Just, the old Socrates before them do the same thing to the conservatives. Yeah, don't dare vote for conservative or you'll split the vote and elect the NDP. The Greens wanted proportional representation, so we'd stop doing that. The, the referendum failed, and it's not surprising that the NDP in this by-election is going back to that. And frankly, the Greens are kidding themselves if they think the New Democrats won't do exactly the same thing to them when the general election rolls around. Because BC elections tend to be close, and one of the ways that the big parties win seats is they frighten the electorate about voting for the other side. Yeah, and there's a, there's sort of a, a little bit to, to wade into there. Uh, Rob, uh, you're taking what the Greens do now. I mean, they, again, uh, I always find it funny. I mean, there's always the tough talk prior to any vote, be it a uh, provincial, federal, uh, by-election. Everyone's in it to win it. Everyone's got a shot. Uh, and then the true moments of honesty are, are the hours immediately after the result. And I know Andrew Weaver, you know, suddenly admits, oh, well, on the doorstep, I heard a lot of Green votes were going NDP in order to shore up the government, that kind of thing. Uh, what what was your take on the Green Party and what they what do they do now? Well, I mean, the Greens ran a good candidate. Uh, I mean, she wasn't uh, as polished as as the other two candidates, but she had a, a big name in Nanaimo, and they still they, they still lost so much ground that, that a lot of us now are wondering what the future of the party even holds. I think the the, the bigger problem the Greens have to pick up on what Vaughn was saying is that their <clears throat> their best um, political friends in their life is the New Democrats, and their worst political enemies are the New Democrats. And what's going to happen now is the NDP <clears throat> is going to prop uh, the Greens back up. And I kind of use the joke, it's like weekend at Bernie's. They're going to put a pair of sunglasses on Andrew Weaver and start <laughs> moving his arms around to make it look like he's still in the game. In fairness, he has the same shirts. Stronger, so. The stronger the, the, um, the Greens look, the better it is for their power-sharing agreement. The more the Greens are willing to pretend that they have the influence to keep that agreement going. But make no mistake about it, the NDP are working on a plan to basically wipe the Greens off the face of the earth and salt the ridings that they won so that they never come back. And the Greens seem surprised by that in the by-election. They didn't 
they don't understand why the NDP is doing that. And and he just supposed to be our friend. Wonder if <laughs> if the Greens understand what they need to do to continue to differentiate themselves from the NDP. It's been the question since they signed the CASA agreement. How do you convince voters to vote Green when, if they're happy with the government that you're propping up, they might just vote for the governing party? And this by-election showed they have no clue, not the smallest clue, how to do that. And they and they should be scrambling behind the scenes um, for whatever the next election is, because that's the central question to the future of their party, I think. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess to you, Vaughn, does this show that from... Uh, CASA negotiations and on, that it's not so much uh, the people that we see elected, but there's a lack of, of experience behind the scenes of the BC Green Party to have any kind of coherent political strategy or plan to kind of take advantage of things, or are they just making it up as they go along as best they can? Well, I, I do think they're, you know, they're a, a wonderfully well-meaning and naive group of people uh, that you often run across, and they're not schooled in the utter ruthlessness of backroom politics in a province like British Columbia. One of the one of the interesting people to follow on Twitter this week, especially after the by-election result, is Norman Spector, who's uh, out there on Twitter, and who was an advisor to Andrew Weaver during the negotiations for CASA. And Spector's theme is that Weaver, had he played that rougher, could have extracted more in the way of promises out of the NDP because John Horgan wanted to be premier badly, and he would have given away things to get there. Uh, but Spectre's argument is that, that Weaver did not drive a hard enough bargain then, and the corollary of that, Shane, is that he has less leverage now to drive a harder bargain. Weaver's talking about renegotiating CASA and getting a better deal, but... You know, the New Democrats, oh, I agree with Rob, the New Democrats would be very nice to Andrew, they're not going to attack him, uh, they'll praise his Hawaiian shirts and uh, what an articulate fellow he is, but behind his back, after Nanaimo, they're going to be calling him Mr. 7%, because that's what share of the vote he took there, and <laughs> I don't think he's got as much leverage now as he did 18 months ago. Yeah. But you, know, you, you know what, Shane? Yeah. Like, I think... I think the NDP are kidding themselves, too, if they don't think... They have to realize that the Greens have actually helped them. And I do believe that Andrew Weaver is correct when he says that the Greens have managed to moderate some of the NDP's worst tendencies to automatically revert back into the 1990s version of the NDP. Mm. And when you look at the people running this party in government, they are guys who were cryogenically frozen in 1990, who have been reemerged and put into all the key positions here. It is a version of the 1990s NDP, which is running a moderate um, government and that helps the NDP and the reason that they've done that is because the Greens have been there to push them a little bit so the NDP to think that they would be in the same position now in terms of popularity and people who aren't scared at that idea of that NDP government I think they have to realize that the Greens actually help them because running as the old tired stale union labor party I think would have would actually have been one of their default positions if the Greens weren't around to push mm. them around. So the NDP might want to keep that in mind as they imagine a future in which they've wiped the Greens off the face of the earth. <laughs> yeah, and I, in, all, uh, in all honesty, that's a great point. And uh, actually, it's one of my favorite things about minority governments is you have to have that uh, you know movement on positions and find compromise uh, much more than if you have a majority government. Uh, we'll continue our conversation with Rob Shaw, Vaughn Palmer, on this topic and plenty more after the break here on Inside Politics. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. 
Acceptable to you. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Rob Shaw and Vaughn Palmer. Guys, as an extension of our conversation on Nanaimo, I just wanted to dredge up a tweet from Andrew Weaver in the in the few days prior to that vote, and I'll just read it here. Uh, he tweeted, It's remarkable that the BCNDP have the audacity to fearmonger the vote-split narrative. An NDP win by no means ensures the BC Greens will continue to prop them up. In fact, an election could be sooner than residents of Nanaimo think. It's hubris to think the NDP have our continued support. Now, ignoring the fact he couldn't get the Twitter name of his own party right uh what do you think about that rob that's the constant challenge i think in covering uh, andrew weaver is that he does tend to make these statements and you think that he is about to do something uh or you know extract some level of punishment from from his governing partner and then he doesn't and you know andrew weaver i guess if you were if you're being sympathetic to the position that he's in um, he has a kill switch that he can use on the NDP government, but he can only use it once. It's this ultimate weapon that he can't actually use. And so the best he can do are statements like that where he threatens and insinuates that the Greens might remove themselves from the power-sharing deal that the NDP are taking them for granted unless they start listening to their concerns. It's kind of the only card he has to actually play without the Trump card. And I, <clears throat> I, I don't know. I think... I think this relationship will be strained coming out of the by-election, but John Horgan and his staff have a way of dealing with Andrew Weaver. They sit him down, they talk to him, and I think they can get him back in line for the budget and the throne speech. Behind the scenes, someone in the Green Party, possibly not Andrew Weaver, should be thinking about how they deal with those issues. But when it comes to Weaver, I don't expect him to act on any of the things that he, that he said in his tweets anytime soon. He's done it before. Yeah, no, he's done it plenty of times before, a lot more bark than bite so far. So, Vaughn, going into the Nanaimo by-election, the threat was that uh, potentially a Liberal win could put the whole government uh, on the brink of a uh, precipice of falling. Uh, that obviously didn't happen, so are we good to go now until a regular provincial by-election, or a, a regular provincial election in 2021, or is there still drama between now and then? Well, I think there's plenty of drama between now and then, but you're right. Uh, you know, uh, statistically, uh, a typical lifespan for a minority government in this country is about 18 months. And there were the New Democrats at the 18-month mark this month, or sorry, in January. And, yeah, the, instead of, you know, heading, you know, being on a, on a kind of an emergency management program, which they would have been if the Liberals had won, uh, they got a new lease on life. And I do think that Horgan is going to charge forward. I made it pretty clear. And why wouldn't he? He's uh, got wind in his sails. And I think he's got, you know, he'll, he'll, he, they already know how to manage Weaver, and I think they'll continue to do that. But uh, the, the thing for the government now is that, you know, and I think we saw that in the debate on the speculation tax in Nanaimo and all that, which is people said, okay, you know, you're, you're doing that. Uh, but remember, the reason you're doing it is because we have a crisis in housing affordability in British Columbia and in rental affordability in B.C. The New Democrats have so far dealt with that problem with taxes. They've targeted the rich. They've targeted people with two homes. They're raising a bunch of revenue. They are now going to have to move forward on making the house 
housing more affordable. And not just social housing, which they're spending money on, but, you know, middle class, uh, people who want to buy a first home. And in order to do that, I still think they're going to have to increase the housing supply. That means persuading developers to build housing. That means persuading them that the housing will be profitable and persuading local governments to approve the projects, not to hold them up for four or five years with uh, quibbling and, and regulations. And all of that is a huge question mark because it is much harder to increase the housing supply than it is to tax the existing housing supply. Yeah, no, for sure. There's lots of landmines out there. Uh, switching gears to the B.C. Liberals, Rob, uh, Andrew Wilkinson came out this week and says uh, three MLAs have told him they won't run again. He didn't reveal who they are. Uh, I assume they're sort of the older generation. Any idea, any names out there in your end or no? Uh, well, the, some of the names you're hearing are actually of, of the younger generation. And there are people like, for example, um, Steve Thompson, who have health issues that, you know, everyone's kind of wondering, uh, the MLAs who aren't exactly fully healthy, do they want to stick around for another term? So, but it, I think the problem in the Liberal uh, Party is trying to convince some of the old MLAs who you and I could list off, you know, the Rich Coleman's and the Mike DeYoung's and the Shirley Bonds and, and those types of people. Reed, Linda Reed. <laughs> Linda Reed. Oh, yeah, Linda Reed. Don't forget about her. <laughs> convince them to go and not just go but announce now that they're going. And for a lot of them, they don't want to do that. They want to be lame duck MLAs. But the key to the party's success is going to be, as quickly as it can, telling people those, those people are gone. Um, and they're not going to resign and spark by-elections. But you need to say to the public now that they've left or they're planning to leave. And those MLAs don't want to do that. And there's a lot of tension within the party uh, to try and, and force them to do it. Uh, and that's the real... I mean, I was surprised at the tone that Andrew Wilkinson took in, right after the by-election in his scrum where he was basically saying, you know, the, the Tony Harris, the Nanaimo candidate, this young guy with no political experience, that's the future of our party. Um, and we got to re- revitalize and rejuvenate and, and basically opening the door to some of the older MLAs and, and putting his foot out and getting ready to push. And it'll be a test of his leadership uh, how he can do that. It's not easy to force uh, MLAs, veteran MLAs, to leave. So it may get a little bit messier for the Liberals as they try and uh, show some of those people the door. How much of that, Vaughn, is on um, the baggage over the last 16 years? It, it seems whatever the Liberals do, and to be fair, a lot of this a lot of this criticism is coming from people who wouldn't vote for them anyway, but uh, this thing of hanging money laundering on them, the housing crisis, all this stuff, it always gets dredged up time and time again, and it's hung on the Liberal Party. How much of that in, in moving away from that older generation is to kind of also you know cut those ties to this stuff constantly being hung on them? I think it. I think it's central. You know, I went to the all candidates meeting uh, in Nanaimo, and Tony Harris, very presentable, very articulate, 34 years old, deep roots in the community. You know, he barely mentioned the Liberal Party during that entire all candidates meeting, which ran 90 minutes. He didn't mention Andrew Wilkinson at all. He he didn't spend a lot of time defending the Liberal record. He talked about the future, and you know, I I think he got it, and I think that's one reason he did well in Nanaimo. But uh, Rob. Right, they're going to have to persuade the the veterans, the people most associated with the last 16 years in power, uh, that it's time to move on. And that is difficult with MLAs because they tend to regard the writing as their personal property. Never mind that in most safe seats in British Columbia, anybody 
would win for the liberals. It really doesn't matter all that much whose name is on the right. And that's true with the NDP as well. But Horgan and the New Democrats before the last election did a very good job of diversifying their caucus and recruiting new and fresh faces. And, you know, as a result, you've got an op- a government and a cabinet that is much more representative of the British Columbia population. And you've got the liberals there uh, where they are definitely going to have to have renewal with a whole bunch of new and fresh faces, and it's going to be a big challenge for Wilkinson to do that because there are a lot of entrenched issues in those some of those ridings, and some of the safest ridings in the province are held by members that are not willing to give them up. It's going to be an interesting challenge. Uh, let's talk about speculation tax, and we'll talk about the latest in the legislative uh, spending controversy after a quick break. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. I wanted to circle back to something uh, you were discussing uh, not that long ago, Vaughn, on the housing front. Um, fan, uh, just a kind of a uh, debate that's circling around the housing in Metro Vancouver I find fan, uh, just fascinating. Um, there's obviously a huge problem there. I think it cuts across all the political divides. Uh, people in that region and to a greater extent southern Vancouver Island as well are just pissed off that housing is becoming unaffordable and out of reach and the question is what to do about it speculation tax was debuted not not so much on speculation more on empty homes tax and now we have these forms that are going out all over house Acre to the impacted regions uh and i'm just you know uh as we kind of look at the ripple effects of this one of the ones that uh, that struck me recently is some of the bureaucratic hell some of these people are being stuck in as as forms go to dead people as they go to people who didn't realize the speculation tax applied to them. There was that newspaper story about the couple in UBC was the weekend home in Chilliwack, all that kind of stuff. And I wonder if it's going to bite the government in the butt if a bunch of people that are, you know, on the fringes of this thing are suddenly find themselves in this kind of bureaucratic nonsense trying to figure out what end is up. Well, I don't, you know, yes, there'll be abuse over it and it'll be issues uh, going forward. I think the bigger concern for the government is that the tax is not going to be very effective. Uh, you know, they might free up a few uh, properties uh, for rental that were being deliberately left vacant, but what it's mainly going to do is raise some money for them. What are they going to do with the money? I I would suggest to you that the real test of how serious the New Democrats are about increasing the housing supply will be their response to this incredible uh, decision request from the city of Vancouver for the government to approve a SkyTrain line all the way to UBC at a cost of almost $4 billion. I think the proper response of the provincial government to that is the province will look at helping to fund that transit line if the city of Vancouver agrees to increase housing density around the stations. The stations on the SkyTrain line that go through Burnaby have huge high-rises around them. Will the west side of Vancouver stand for that? Or will they want the entire line tunneled at provincial cost and the stations to have roughly the same profile as a Max Milk store or a Starbucks? Um, the, The west side of Vancouver doesn't want greater housing density. They want a big transit line at enormous expense. But to me, that's got to be the provincial response. If, the, if all provincial taxpayers are paying for transit and paying big, 
billions of dollars, the return should be vastly increased housing density to deal with the shortage of affordable housing in Vancouver. And some of the, some of the financing for the line should come from the developers getting the high-rise rights. In other words, they pay into the fund to build the stations, uh, and in return, they get to build high-rises. But will Vancouver stand for that? No. That's where the province has to use its leverage. Yeah, that's an interesting debate. Uh, How much of a hand grenade is this housing thing, Rob? It was for the B.C. Liberals, and I think now it is for the NDP. Uh, You know, there's lots of partisans who want to trash the tax or support the tax, but I'm seeing a really interesting public debate develop around people who are just kind of trying to figure out this nonsense form letter and or, you know, if you're wealthy and you can afford two homes, then you should be able to pay to help out the homelessness fronts and all that kind of jazz. But it's uh, there's a definite anger and divide developing out there, and I just wonder how much of it will backlash on the government of the day. Yeah, I mean, well, it's not even just two homes. It's people who are complaining about having to fill this out for their one home to get the exemption. And you see some of the New Democrat supporters saying, well, it must be nice to own a home. And I think that kind of, you know, example is why some of us often talk about the idea that the New Democrats are engaging in a very, you know, low-level class warfare campaign. And we've talked about it on this show before, too. Um, And... they have moderated that um, to a certain extent so far, but when they look at what they might have to do to actually affect the housing market, they get more and more into the idea of class warfare territory, that you're going to have to penalize people who own things to help other people uh, own. And they're in the same position that the Liberals were in, that the NDP gave no quarter on, which is if you do anything to make housing more affordable, you put people potentially underwater. Someone who used their parents' um, finances to help them just buy a condo or a house today um, doesn't want to see housing become more affordable because suddenly then their house that they just mortgaged themselves to the Hilton is worth less than what their mortgage is for. And that was the liberal problem. That's the NDP problem. The NDP's benefited from the kind of echo effect of the federal government cracking down on mortgages, the stress tests, um, and and that kind of thing to cool the market, but I, I I don't know what they can do. And you know the liberals got to a point in that where they kind of threw their hands up and said, we're going to help municipalities on density. We're going to encourage the reduction of red tape. We're going to encourage developers to build more. But the government can't solve this problem on its own. And the new Democrats scoffed at that and said, of course the government can do things. And now it's <laughs> the question of what what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, and this budget will be a big indicator of where they may be going because if they never, if the NDP government only has maybe another year before everyone thinks that we might head into an election, this budget's important for them to show that they've actually got an action plan on housing and kind of blow us all back in our seats and say, here's here's where we're going on it. Yeah. Uh, we've only got a few minutes left, and I do want to jam in the latest twists and turns on the legislature's spending controversy front. Uh, Bell Ringer, uh, the Auditor General Carol Bell Ringer, uh, has launched her, what she calls a deep dive audit. Uh, Lamsey also extending the period to get that written defense back from Craig James and Gary Lenz. Uh, Vaughn, I thought you wrote an interesting column this week, sort of outlining the history behind uh, the legislature's lack of ability to get a handle on the spending and all the stuff behind the scenes, and perhaps this time they could just please get it right. Yeah, every time they've tried to 
to to pen up uh, the livestock on this one. They've left the gate open and it's escaped. So the big cha- challenge this time is to is to get it right and get it all the way right. Uh, Carol Bellringer, uh, we saw a reversal last week by the government. Uh, originally, having thought they would go to a, an auditor general from another province, uh, New Democrats realized that the auditor general of BC is the right person to do this audit. She's her office has been at, on the case for 12 years and 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 has managed to bring a lot of improvements about. So that's good. Uh, but the legislature, uh, the three parties in the legislature are going to have to decide what to do about the suspended clerk and sergeant-at-arms. Uh, they've given them another week to come back with their replies. Uh, there is probably going to be some sort of legal action there at some point. Um, They are suspended. Uh, I guess the three parties in the House could decide to terminate them, uh, although that would be premature if they they think they've got a plausible response to all this. But at least we're getting going on the audit, and we still await uh, the other review that they've promised, hasn't gotten as much attention, is a review of the workplace where you have a bunch of allegations that a bunch of people were forced to uh, resign, given severance, but forced to sign confidentiality agreements. And there's a commitment of some sort to review that situation and see if people were treated fairly. Rob, are they are they between a rock and a hard place on potentially saying to Craig James and Gary Lenz, you're dismissed, you're essentially fired, uh, pending their, their written defense and however the whole situation plays out? Because at the end of the day, if there's no criminal charge in this thing, that potentially could be one more bullet in the gun for them to launch a pretty massive lawsuit uh, about smearing their, their reputations and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I think that's coming anyways. I mean, whether they're charged or not, or I mean... Nowadays, it's hard to fire someone, and even in government, without some type of you know, legal action in some way. So I think that's coming. I, I, I just think, to pick up on Bond's point, it's not, it is not rocket science to fix the spending problems at the legislature. You don't need an academic committee. You don't even need the forensic audit, although I think it's a good idea to look at the past. You just make the building open. And whether that's under FOI and you, or partial FOI or... You just go in there and start proactively posting everything, or even better, you sit everyone in that building down and you say, listen, everything that you do is public. When someone comes in and asks for something, you give it to them. Because I can tell you from walking around there, even even now, you walk into an office and say, hey, can I get this information? And they go, um, yeah, well, I just, I'm going to have to check, and I don't, I'm not sure. Like, it's insane. It, the legislature is out of step, out of time, and it's not rocket science to fix it. But I guess the MLAs want all these covers of different uh, reports and recommendations to do it. Transparency, you know, like sunshine is the greatest uh, disinfectant, as Mike DeYoung used to say, and it is. Just make it all public there. And one of the reasons we're in this scandal is because the only thing that wasn't public were the expenses of the senior officials in the building, and you couldn't get them without going to them, and they weren't going to give them to you. So, you know, I mean, MLAs can do whatever politicking they want on this, but if they wanted to solve the problem, they could be doing it right now. Absolutely. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. There's Rob Shaw and uh, Vaughn Palmer, both of the Vancouver Sun. Take a quick break here on Inside Politics, and Terry Lake will join us on the other side. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL.
Well, he came out of the bag, a rumor around town for the last few weeks, came out of the bag and admitted he is considering a run for the federal Liberals. Terry Lake joins me now. Terry, how are you? I'm great, but I was never in a bag. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> pretty sure. Might have been in a, in a haze, but not a, not a bag. All right, so why won't you just say yes to this thing already? Well, because I, I really haven't made uh, a decision, Shane. Uh, you know, people think that... Uh, it's a simple one. It, it's not. Um, you know, when I decided not to run again for provincial politics, I believed I was done politics. You know, I had, had a great uh, career at local level and provincial level. I, in, for the most part, enjoyed it and felt like I made a positive contribution. Uh, despite the comments I'm seeing on <laughs> social media, um, hey, not all of them are bad. Yeah, there's, not, there's not a all lot bad. of people. I know That's Diane nice. Watts came out the other day and just said, "Just do it already." <laughs> well, but it, it is a tough decision. I mean, you know, uh, last night one of my kids called and said, "Oh, we just you know read all the social media, and you know, so it impacts more than just yourself. It impacts yeah. your family, and and so uh, you know, I, I thought I was done, but." Uh, quite a few people have reached out to me and asked me if I would consider doing this. And, um, you know, they're, I guess it's built in. You have this sense of public service uh, and it's interesting work. And if you feel like you can make a contribution, then it's something that I have to consider. But, you know, it's, um, you know, I'm, I've got a, a great job at the moment. And so that's affected. I really have to put a lot of thought into this. And whereas I've been a, a you know, a, a a liberal, although I, you know, I don't really like the labels that we give people because I don't think anyone is, is one thing or another. You right. know, a lot of people think about different issues differently, sure. and they don't necessarily fall into, you know, the liberal, conservative, NDP kind of molds. Uh, but of all the parties, that's the one that I've aligned myself with over the years, and and so I, you know, I, I certainly feel that alignment. Although there are some things that. Um, you know, concern me about uh, this particular Liberal government. So, I, you know, I, I really do need to give it some thought. What concerns you? Well, you know, I'm a, a very social uh, Liberal. Um, people have seen that in terms of, you know, the uh, the work we did on the opioid crisis and, and you know, the, advocate, uh, the advocacy I've had for uh, raising um, uh, rates uh, for people on income assistance, etc., wasn't successful to convince my colleagues, but on other things, I'm I'm more of a conservative on on balancing budgets. So I'm used to being in a government that balances budgets, right. and so this has been a concern and, and the subject of conversation that I've had uh, with people uh, at the federal level uh, to let them know that you know where I come from, people want the the budget to be balanced, even though our GDP, uh, you know, our debt to GDP ratio is is excellent when you compare it to other G7 nations. Um, and so I, I went through the parliamentary budget officer's report um, and, you know, they looked at all of this and, and they're an independent office and they said, this is a sustainable fiscal plan. Um, but to me, it, it has to come sooner than 2040 right. or something like that. So that's one of the issues I have. And, and as people you know, are maybe not of the same view and say, why would you do it? I say, well, actually, they probably need people like me to bring that message uh, inside the tent. So it is something that I that what, I do think about. What are the chances you're going to say no? Because I'm going to tell you right now, I've known you for a while. <laughs> and my, if I'm going to bet, if I'm going to put money on the table, it's on a yes. I, I struggle to think you're going to say no at the end of this thing. Well, you do know me, and, and I like a challenge, and, um, you know, I, I like to do meaningful work, and I love this city and, and this 
community, you know, up the North Thompson and, and the, the area around Kamloops. And, of course, this riding stretches into the Caribou as well. And, you know, I... I feel like I want to make a positive contribution. So it is it, it is difficult to say no when these things come your way, but at the same time, I have an obligation to my family, obligation to my employer, uh, and so I, I need to think about those things. Okay. Uh, I've asked you this before, but just to repeat, what's the timeline for you when are you going to say yes or no? Well, I think in the five, next... Because this interview lasts another five minutes. Yeah. So I, I'm hoping it's between now and then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. No, uh, yeah, I think in the next, you know, month to six weeks is is a reasonable timeline. Uh, there's a few more data points I need I need to really uh, think about before before making a final decision. And whatever the decision is, I've told the the, the prime minister that I will help uh, the liberals in this riding because I think it's winnable for the liberals, and mm. I think uh, it would be nice to have an MP uh, in government because I do believe that the government will. Uh, be re-elected. Uh, it's unusual for a majority government to lose after one term. And I think generally speaking, they're doing most things right. No government ever gets it right. We never got it right at the provincial level uh, in all in all things. So, you know, I you have to say, okay, uh, are they doing most of it uh, the right way? And, and I, I believe they are. How much of the how much of this factors into your thinking the the divisiveness that's out there right now? Yeah. Kath, Kathy McLeod, to her yeah. credit, has come out and defended our own Brett Manier and right. some of the people that have gone out and been real snakes in the grass, this venomous crap. Um, because I, you're going to encounter that if you run as a Liberal nominee, there is going to be a certain segment of the right wing that is going to try and make your life a living hell and toss all sorts of mindless crap at you. I and, and to be fair, same with the left from Kathy McLeod currently deals with it now. Sure. But how how much of that factors into your thinking? And then if you do it, it does. how do you raise the bar? It, it does factor in because it, we've become so polarized uh, and the debate has become so toxic in some cases that you just... You know, and I, that's, that is one of the concerns I had. As I said, you know, when one of my kids calls me and, and is, you know, a little bit distressed by those kinds of comments that right. she read in reaction to me thinking about running, um, you realize that, well, why would I put myself and my family through that? But at the same time, if people don't get involved and try to raise the bar and uh, the, the, the level of discourse, then it'll just get worse. And so, you know, to her credit, Kathy has taken a stand on this. And, you know, Kathy and I, always worked really well together. She's been a good MP for our region. I don't think anyone could could uh, say otherwise. Uh, so I think, you know, I'm, I'm happy uh, that she's taken that stand. I certainly will take that stand. I want to be, whatever I do, uh, whether I do this or not, whatever I do, I want to be positive about it. I don't want to be that you know, pulling people down is, is not my style. And, uh, and I just wish it wasn't so prevalent on social media today. I think social media is the problem. I think it creates echo chambers where people are self-radicalizing. Uh, yeah. They just, they go down these rabbit holes and I've seen people that I thought had somewhat, you know, I, I respected their political position and had somewhat of a rationale and I've seen them just in the space of a year on social media yeah. just turn into rabid wolves on one side or the other. It's, it's, it's a form of tribalism that is um, very raw and, and base and uh, you know, you wouldn't get that same level of discourse if you were face-to-face with the person, uh, having a coffee and discussing sure, it. Yeah. And we've got to get back to that that mutual respect. We can agree to disagree and still respect each other. And so I would like politics to return a little more towards that. Um, 
And so, you know, that is something to consider. Uh, if I do this, uh, I, I want to do it in a way that, that is positive, not negative. If you do it and if you win, uh, uh, any thought to being in cabinet? Is that something you would discuss with the prime minister? Is that something you leave up to him? Because uh, I've already seen some chatter on, on Facebook and Twitter about, oh, Terry Lake as a health minister would be, you know, yada, yada, yada. Is that something that factors into this or no? Uh, well, you want to be, uh, you know, have an opportunity to do meaningful work, whether that's as a private member or backbencher or, or uh, you know, a, a cabinet minister. And... Yeah, you know, with my background, uh, I, I think I could certainly contribute to that level. Uh, having said that, I know what it's like. And so when I first got elected provincially, I never uh, assumed that I would get into cabinet because you have to look at the team you have after the election. Uh, we certainly need to have balance in terms of gender, in terms of region, in terms of uh, backgrounds. Uh, so that's a very complex job, putting a cabinet together. Uh, do I think I can contribute to that level? Absolutely. Would I like to for our Region. I think that would be great. I think, you know, we could we could really do some great things for Kamloops, Thompson, Caribou, uh, if if that were to happen. But certainly, there's no quid pro quo, uh, and and I wouldn't expect the prime minister to make that kind of a promise. Okay, so Terry Lake still on the fence. You got about three seconds left. You still want? No, <laughs> nice <right>. touch. <laughs> I will not be rushed. <laughs> uh, my money's still on a yes down the road. So that's Terry Lake uh, the mulling a run for the federal Liberals here in the Camlu Thompson Caribou for this fall's federal election. And that's it for Inside Politics. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL. Same time next week. 106.7 Logan Lake. 98.1 Blue River. 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops. A Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.